Welcome to the latest podcast from the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute at Harvard University. My name is Hasit Shah. The Mittal Institute's flagship event took place at the beginning of May 2018. The theme of the annual symposium was knowledge translation. In other words, how we move from research to action, from theory to practice, and how we find ways for the best people from completely different disciplines to work together. Professor Ashok Gudgil, who's from the University of California, Berkeley, was originally a theoretical physicist. But during his distinguished career, he's had a huge impact on thousands of lives with inventions that supply clean water to the poorest people in South Asia. If you give some thought to technology invention, technology innovation, going to scale, have an impact in developing countries, uh, give it some thought, it's kind of obvious that there have to be some commonalities of what are the technologies that have actually successfully worked and gone to scale and have a, had a positive impact on, on people's lives, particularly people who are not well-off under resource-constrained societies. And obviously, the, the first thing is it's got to be affordable. You can't run on charity forever. So at least eventually when you have the learning curve and the prices come down, at some point, local people have to recognize that the price they pay is less than the value they receive. And that point is when things will really get moving because now you, the learning curve has brought you down. It's got to be technically effective. And the reason I say this is because there are, surprisingly, technologies being promoted in the developing world which nobody tests carefully, which nobody tests rigorously, which simply have claims uh, by assertion that, oh, this thing will do X or this thing will do Y. Uh, and part of the problem lies in the relatively weak technical testing and verification and validation ability in the developing world. Part of it lies in the, the desperate pressure to do something and have an impact, along with people who will make claims uh, without right kind of validation and verification. It has to be robust in the sense that in the relevant operating conditions outside the lab, uh, things should not fall apart. They should have long enough life. Uh, your voltage is not going to be not really going to be there some of the time. And then if it is there, it's going to fluctuate. Your frequencies are not stable. There is a lot more dust and dirt than you would expect in a nice clean lab, in a, even in uh, an IIT in India. Uh, there may not be a Phillips screwdriver within 20 miles of your setup. Things like that, you know, it's, it's got to be there. And then lastly, it must be culturally appropriate. You can't expect people to fall in line and adopt one of the one of the most difficult things to change is their culture. And why should they change their culture to fit with your technology? The technology must fit the culture. If you try, culture will eat the technology all the time. So it's the job of the engineers to figure out what is the culture, what is acceptable, and then figure out a solution that will meet with the culture. It's never, never good enough to say, it works in the lab, now you adopt to it. 
It's not going to be like that. You got to learn what the culture is, go back to the lab and figure out how it will work with their culture. Okay? Now, I want to say that I conveyed to you what are obviously the correct but fatally incomplete four requirements. These requirements, these, the, the four which are on the, on the screen now, are kind of obvious after some thought. And what I learned in my last 30 years of stubbing my toes, sometimes bloodying my nose, uh, is that this is very dangerously incomplete list. Three lessons learned. One is that for a new technology to be successful, design thinking must be integrated with the implementation of the, the, the impl implementation model of the technology. And I'll give an example when I, when I get to examples. But oftentimes it happens that the design thinking happens in a researcher's mind in the lab, and that's where the testing happens. They throw it over the transom saying, oh, some business wala will take care of how to scale it up and how to make it work. And that always or almost always fails. Secondly, societal factors, social factors are as critical for a technology success as those from engineering science. So engineering science, of course, is hard physics rules of chemistry and physics. You can't violate them. But on top of that, there is one more layer of rules which are invisible, which are not in standard textbooks, uh, which everybody reads, which are how societies work. You've got to worry about that. And lastly, to go to scale, there is an additional layer that you have to cross, which is political economy, behavioral economics, organizational behavior, institutional imperatives, cultural norms, social drivers. They can prove fatal flaws unless they are also integrated in thinking about how you want to take a technology out of the lab and how it's going to be successful and how it's going to go to scale. Otherwise, the technology crashes and burns. So that's not good. So all these three lessons could be summarized in one single requirement that I'm going to appropriate from the field of impact evaluation. Impact evaluation in social sciences is a very mature field. And there are textbooks and pages and reports. You can just, even the Wikipedia entry is pretty formidable. So the, the one single requirement which will force you to do all the other three, is to articulate and then critically examine your theory of change. When I mean critically examine, I really mean like setting up a red team and a blue team. And the red team is going to attack and destroy your theory of change. I'll come to that in a second. And your blue team will have to make a defense of that theory of change that will stand a test of Credibility will, will pass the laugh test. People won't laugh at it. That's when you, you got something to think about next. So it refers to articulating how an intervention, a, a narrow technological intervention, will lead to a positive societal impact. They're big, far apart things. The narrow technological intervention is going to be your activities. Maybe it's a fuel-efficient stove. Maybe it's a device that kills pathogens in water. And the positive social impact is going to be presumably reducing the labor of women collecting 
firewood four hours a day or six hours a day or is going to be reducing childhood mortality from diarrheal deaths right from from foul drinking water so there is there is that gap between them and it's your theory of change that provides a logical compelling link of how that technical invention or innovation will eventually lead to this societal impact now there are many steps in this in that chain of causation and that's what theory of change forces you to articulate and test at least with this red team blue team kind of concept and a schematic representation is the activities there are your narrow technological invention or innovation that you think you'll take to scale and that is where you are able to control the inputs and you have good grip on the outputs to to take the example of safe clean drinking water you have you understand what kind of water you will take in and you got this magic machine and you know that it produces safe drinking water that meets all of who requirements from that fat book which is the guidelines for drinking water as put out by uh, the geneva office of who so that only are the first three boxes you only got up to the output from there on you think or you hope that it will lead to certain outcome such as you hope that people will actually drink that water and not some other dirty water otherwise they are going to get diarrhea and the children will still keep on dying and then your hope is that it will lead to the impact that you want to achieve so in fact the outcome part and the impact part is influenced by forces that support you and that oppose you in terms of the direction where you want to go and that all those arrows are out of your control and that's what you need to understand well that's what i need to understand well if my my activities and outputs will lead to an outcome which will lead to a positive impact okay so then that forces us to recognize these positive and negative drivers and they might force us under this kind of harsh critiques that we should do ourselves to rethink the original wishful idea which may turn out to be not so good is better to throw out an idea if it is not so good because the cost is relatively little uh, as they say fail uh, early often and at low cost right so why articulate a theory of change is kind of straightforward causal relationships articulating assumptions it tells you uh, what what to do what not to do and then identifies necessary factors for theory to work identifies risks all of this work is orthogonal to a separate work that we all have to do when we take something from the lab to the field which is the standard development along observing ideas doing engineering breakthroughs pilot which is field test and then field trials and then pilot tests of deployment and then evaluate demand and scale up and monitor so this is kind of this is lot more like an engineering textbook stuff and when this meets the previous chain logical flow chain and you are able to have both work that's when you are able to take things to scale at least that's my lessons learned and now i'm going to jump into two examples 
One is safe, affordable drinking water. Other is removing arsenic from groundwater. That's used for drinking. Uh, there are other projects. Neither of these two are under the Tata Harvard plan, but we'll talk about them later. So, about 2 billion people nominally, 1.2 billion, but in reality, close to 2 billion people on the planet don't have safe drinking water. It leads to 4 million deaths every year from waterborne pathogens, uh, mostly uh, children below 5 because they get dehydrated and die faster. Uh, this photograph is from Dhaka, from the biggest hospital in Dhaka, which is called a cholera hospital. And this is a cholera corridor because all the beds are full, all the rooms are full. And this was in December, which is not the cholera season. And still people are on IV drips, if you can barely see in the photos. And that's the cholera bed, with, which always has the rubber mat with a hole in the middle to catch the cholera uh, diarrheal discharge. Uh, so situation is not very good in the developing world. Uh, and it led uh, to my inventing a device called UV Waterworks. It's about the size of a kitchen microwave oven. Uh, it disinfects uh, about one ton of water per hour, uses 60 watts of electricity. Uh, one unit like this is enough uh, for providing 10 liters of safe drinking water to 2,000 people at a go in terms of how it works. And the, the invention or the device was licensed by a private company from the University of California. They are my employer. They have the patent on this. And um, they, they put up these systems where one of these centers uh, serves 6,000 people. It has three of those machines. It takes water from that dirty pond in the background, filters it mechanically, kills the pathogens, uh, puts it up in stainless steel tanks up on the upper story. Uh, when there is electricity, whole thing is automated. And then water is delivered, whether you have electricity or not, by force of gravity. And uh, as of now, 2017, December, when my graduate student went to Andhra Pradesh, a new center had come up next to his village. Uh, they're selling water for six rupees for 10 liters. That meets all aspects of uh, standards for, for WHO or, or um, WHO India and everywhere. Uh, here's a photo of the technology, same thing in Ghana, uh, 2011. Story to date is uh, that I already mentioned Water Health International is a licensee. As of 2017, they were serving 7 million people, mostly in India. Uh, other countries are listed there, and third-party survey in 2015 showed that 80% uh, of their customers are what you call BPL in India, below poverty line, and, and it continues to grow. Uh, so that's just one very quick example of what can happen when you, when you see all these things and line them up. Uh, there are very big positive reasons of why this particular technology was disseminated, disseminated in this particular model. Why it was not turned into household units? Why was it not turned into some other way? It's pay as you go and there's no subsidy. Now I'm going to talk about arsenic. Again, give you a very big broad brush sketch saying why is it important to urgently address arsenic? Uh, there are about 200 million people in the world who must rely on drinking water that is groundwater contaminated with toxic levels of arsenic. 
uh, India has originally they thought it is about 30 million, the number has grown to now 60. Uh, arsenic is there now in groundwater all the way from uh, Punjab in Pakistan all the way to Assam through Bangladesh, of course, being the hottest spot. Uh, worldwide, the number is estimated to be about 200 million people. Now, this is a graph showing you the rate of excess internal cancers of what happens if people drink carcinogens at the permitted level in their drinking water over a lifetime. If 100,000 people drink water with carcinogens at maximum MCL, per maximum contaminant level, okay, arsenic at its MCL of 10 ppb causes about 720 internal cancers among 100,000 people. All the other permitted carcinogens at their maximum contaminant level are shown here where the bars become very quickly invisible. Okay. The, the most significant next one, uh, which is uh, ethylene dibromide, causes 12 cancers at its MCL over a lifetime of consumption. So this is, this is already pretty bad. And the fact is people drink water with concentrations which range up to 800 parts per billion um, in Bangladesh and in parts of India next to Bangladesh. Uh, and uh, the risk ratio is linear at that low concentrations. So I started working on this back in uh, 2005. Uh, came up with a technology that we thought will work in the lab, then scaled it up and tested it in India 2012 uh, in a school. Uh, this was first in Jadhapur University. Then we set this up. Uh, now that, that steel box, the blue colored, blue painted steel box in the background, that has the same chemistry operating as that little beaker you saw earlier. So it takes time to get to this point and debug the whole thing. But now you have two 1,400 liter reactors there. Uh, and it, it can treat 10,000 liters per day. Uh, 252 parts per billion is the inlet water concentration. And the outlet water concentration average is less than three parts per billion. Uh, 10 ppb is the blue line on the top. And the private company that has a non-exclusive license from this sells water to the community and gives it free to the school kids selling water to the community at 60 paise per liter or six rupees for 10 liters. So there is a good offtake and they, they seem to make it work well. So big picture view, uh, there would have been 18,000 deaths or there still are 18,000 deaths per 100,000 people from internal cancer risk. Internal cancer is in rural India pretty much fatal. You, you detect it too late. Uh, so the death rate is 18 per 100 uh, arsenic and 10 ppb, which we saw as a huge vertical red bar, is only lifetime risk is 0.7 per 100. And with this technology, we are able to bring it down, selling water at uh, 1 cent US per liter. So the technology is field tested, piloted, shown to be commercially viable, works in one site, but has not yet gone to scale. That's still work in progress. So I give you one example of things which have been kind of engineering scale-up has happened, but societal scale-up hasn't happened. And the other example where things have gone to scale reasonably well and seem to be growing well. So that's where I would like to stop.